Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. This week, we're taking a close look at a lever for making users more successful within our products. Once we get users in the door, how do we better help them understand what they need to do, how they're supposed to think about it, and what their next steps are? In many ways, it's interface content, the words that build our products that do the heavy lifting here. And joining us to explain why is Amy Thibodeau, a content strategist at the beloved e-commerce platform, Shopify. Amy was part of the team that recently pulled together Shopify's Polaris. That's a publicly accessible design system that focuses heavily on the role of content and tone of voice in creating a coherent product. Amy's also working on a book, From Button Copy to Bots, which is to be published next year by Rosenfeld Media. And hopping back a bit, she was one of the first members of Facebook's product content team. In short, Amy knows a thing or two about creating language that's easy to understand and for users to act upon. So joined by Intercom's own content strategy lead, Elizabeth McGain, Amy explains why poorly crafted language often leads to unintentional dark patterns. It all comes back to well-meaning people who just don't really know the purpose of the content that they're writing and aren't really thinking about what the user needs. They're thinking more about what they want to do. The thinking behind Shopify's Polaris system. Design systems and how they're represented in a style guide really should be a reflection of how a company works and what they value. And how personality within product content, be it for a bot or just a simple button, can create problems for users. Whether that is checking in for a flight or trying to transfer money between their different bank accounts, sometimes the big personality can actually get in the way and be distracting and not allow the person to accomplish the task they're trying to do as quickly as they would like. If you like what you hear and want to check out more Inside Intercom episodes, subscribe to the show over on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. While you're there, we'd be forever grateful if you shot us a rating or a review. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we appreciate all the feedback we can get. And now, let's hop into the studio with Elizabeth McGain and Amy Thibodeau. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Elizabeth. So let's start with your story. Where has your career taken you so far and how did you get to be a content strategist? I think my story is common in the sense that people have such circuitous paths to content strategy. Uh, So I started out, I'm originally from Regina, Saskatchewan, um, the middle of nowhere, Canada, basically. (laughs) And I started my career working in communications for museums and art agencies And then I moved to the UK because I had a couple of grandparents that were from the UK. So that enabled me to move there under an ancestry visa. And I started working at a digital agency as the head of communications. And this is really when I changed my career and started working on interface content. The main product of the digital agency was a content management system. And while I was working there, the team was redoing the content management system. And because I was the end user of that system, I ended up giving a lot of feedback about the experience, um, working really closely with the product designer to sort of say, as somebody who would use this product, this doesn't make sense, or you might want to change this language. And that's really how I started working in product content strategy. And then when I left that agency, I decided to leave and travel for a year and do some consultancy. And about a month before I left, I read a post by Rachel Lovinger from Razorfish, and um, it was all about content strategy. And at the time, it was a fairly new term. 
And when I read this post, it was just all of the things that I enjoyed about my job and none of the stuff that I didn't enjoy. And so I officially decided to call myself a content strategist. And that year while I was traveling, I was picking up little projects here and there and writing about them on a blog that I kept called Contentini. And it was really, the blog was about me thinking out loud and trying to sort through all the questions that I had about the work that I was doing. Um, Because at that time, there really weren't many people writing about interface content. And that's how Facebook found me. And then um, I ended up at Facebook and was there for four years and took a a year and a half off to freelance in between Facebook. And uh, now I'm at Shopify as the content strategy lead. Great. That's that's quite the journey. Uh, that resonates with me a lot as well. You focus primarily on, or certainly the, the term that you've used to describe the work that you do is, is focusing on interface content. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What do you mean by interface content and like what do you think that covers? Yeah, the, the book that I'm working on is really focused on interface content, and that's definitely been what I focused on in my career. So interface content is the content that people encounter within an interface or within a product that they're trying to use. Uh, So it might include things like the content that is on buttons. Um, It can include things like settings and certainly also the content that people experience when they're onboarding in a new product. So um, an example that I can use from Facebook is the first time that you sign up for Facebook, you will see certain content in the interface that helps you to understand what Facebook is, how to use it, and some of the basic things that you're supposed to do to get started. Um, So it's all of those things. It also includes some hairier bits, like, for example, privacy settings. Um, How we communicate privacy in an interface is really important, and that's a a big part of, um, of interface content. Great. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting that taken individually, you know, talking about buttons, these things can be perceived to be maybe relatively low value. Do you think that that a is an accurate perception or do you think that that's changed in the last couple of years and why do you think it's changed? I think it's changed in the last few years just simply because I see this real growth in the community of content strategists who are focusing on interfaces. When I first started at Facebook, we were trying to grow our team and it was really, really hard to find anybody who had interface content experience. And now I feel like there's this thriving community around this practice. And absolutely, I think the reason for that is because companies are realizing that Without thoughtful content, an interface is essentially just a series of buttons and lines and uh, boxes. And it's really the content in that experience that helps people to understand what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to think about it, what their next steps are. Um, So, for example, a button... Uh, can teach somebody what's going to happen next. It helps to give them the power to make a decision whether they want to click or not. So a button that is unclear results in an unclear experience for users. So they see this button, they're not sure what's going to happen if they click. Um, In some darker pattern experiences, it can result in people taking actions they didn't intend to take. Um, It can cause them to reveal things they didn't want to reveal. So the way that we think about and label interface elements is really, really important because it is not just about people consuming information, but it's about the way that they find their way through an experience. And I think if we believe that these digital experiences that we're building matter to people, and I think they do matter to people, I think it's really incumbent on us to clarify those experiences. And I think the best way to do that is through language. Yeah, I mean, it really sounds like you're describing like the building blocks, the nuts and bolts of the user experience and and, and connecting people from one 
one part of uh, the experience to another. You also mentioned dark patterns, which I think is, you know, it's, it's a pretty weighty concept. Do you think that there is a potentially a danger for people to have accidental dark patterns if they don't pay attention to content or to language at this level? And I suppose if so, how do they mitigate it other than the obvious thing, which is hire a writer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, the whole purpose of the book that I'm writing is really to help well-meaning people who were not necessarily trained to write to think about how language works in an interface. Because I do think that the vast majority of people who are working on these experiences have good intentions. I, I think they just often don't know where to start. So a really simple example that I can give that that I don't think anybody means any harm by, but that happens all the time, is you'll often see links in an interface that just say click here. And the problem with that kind of a link is it's unclear what's going to happen when you click on it. Anything could happen if you click on something that says click here. It's also a problem from an accessibility perspective. So somebody who is using a screen reader doesn't have any context about, about what's going to happen if they click. And so I think the result there is that people often end up taking actions that they didn't intend to take um, or find themselves lost in a different part of the interface because of a badly labeled link. And I think that is just an example of somebody writing interface content who just doesn't know how to think about it. They're not necessarily intending to fool the user into doing the wrong thing, but they just don't know any better. And so I think all of the writing and talking and thinking about interface content is as much for writers as it is for those people who just find themselves at a startup um, or building their own product, and they just don't really know how language works, and they don't know how to think about it. Another example is an error message. Um, we see a lot of really bad error messages in software. And I think it's more important for somebody who's writing an error message to understand what an error message is supposed to do than necessarily how to write perfect prose in an error message. Sure. So um, as long as somebody understands that an error message should communicate what happened and how to fix the problem to the user, the specific language that they use is less important as long as they know how to communicate those two concepts. But you see a lot of error messages online where it just, it'll say like, there was a problem or error 40456. And again, I think that that's just an example of people writing content who just don't know how to think about it. Right. I mean, you even have like, oops, something went wrong, which is an attempt to make something that was unclear a little friendlier, but still super unclear about what's actually happened. Definitely, definitely. And I think another example, 404 pages. Uh, 404 pages are this uh, sort of breeding ground for quirky content. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's really interesting because essentially what has happened is, is an error has happened. You know, somebody is trying to use your software, use your website to do something or to find something. They've hit a wall. And instead of helping them find their way, um, many companies use that as a moment to you know, joke, which I think is a really strange thing. And again, I think it all comes back to well-meaning people who just don't really know the purpose of the content that they're writing mm -hmm. and aren't really thinking about what the user needs. They're thinking more about what they want to do. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, the other examples that you mentioned, it really is about motivation. So maybe not putting the emphasis on the right motivation. So with Click Here, people have said, well, people click on things that say Click Here, which you know, to some extent they do, but they still don't know what they're doing when they do it. So it's not it's not the right thing for the user. And I think the same thing, you know, in a 404 page, other people do it, they put personality in them. So therefore, it's okay for us to do it. 
people expect it almost, but it isn't necessarily adding any value. So that's that's a really interesting point, and that sort of ties all of that together. So at Shopify, you've been part of a team that's developed the Polaris design system. Is that is that the correct term? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a content strategy lead on what we call the patterns team. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of the systems team, the design systems team at Shopify. And so I led the Polaris style guide project. And the style guide is really the, I guess, current manifestation of our design system. So if you think about a design system, like a bunch of things, building blocks, um, the style guide is really the piece that explains how to put those building blocks together um, into an interface. Okay. And what kind of things then does a style guide cover, I suppose, in in the Polaris system? Like I know that that can be, it's a term that we've borrowed from like journalism and like house style guides and so on. So what does it cover for you? Is it language and interface? Does it extend to code? Yeah, absolutely. So the Polaris style guide is a representation of Shopify's principles. It includes a section on content, so how to write for interface content. Um, It includes a section on visuals, which is really about the look and feel, the visual look and feel of our interfaces. And where I think all of these different disciplines come together is at the component level. So we've also published a component library, which is a range of building block components for Shopify. And for every single component, we've written UX guidelines, we've written content guidelines for any component that has a content element. And we've also talked for each component about its purpose. So what is the purpose of a button in Shopify for merchants? What are we trying to enable by using buttons over, say, links? Another example is, you know, why would we use a checkbox over a set of radio buttons? In including information about the merchant needs and UX guidelines, what we really wanted to do was not just show people the code behind our components, but also show them um, how we think about them and how they should think about them if they're building experiences for Shopify. And I guess one of our guiding principles in putting this style guide together was to really think about how could we help people build better quality experiences in Shopify, and how could we also help them to work more quickly? Um, So those were the two different things we were thinking about when we put the style guide together and when we decided what we would launch in our first version, which came out at the end of April. That's Yeah, it's a really, really impressive piece of work. I mean, one of the things I love about it is how front and center language is. You know, it has pride of place on the the homepage, and it seems very clearly defined. Um, Was that something that came organically from the content strategy team there that was already created or sort of how mature were those ideas when you set about trying to pull it all together? Yeah, so I started at Shopify in January and there was already a solid base of internal standards. Um, There were already some voice and tone guidelines. We already had an internal library of components, for example. But what we didn't have was this sort of system, I guess, that brought all of these things together. The other thing that I want to mention about Shopify is it is genuinely the most integrated UX team that I've ever worked on. And so design systems and how they're represented in a style guide really should be a reflection of how a company works and what they value. And Shopify is a very, very integrated UX team. So UX includes design, content strategy, research, front-end development, and it also includes some other disciplines like illustrators and icon designers. And the way we tackle projects is very much from an integrated multidisciplinary model. We even have a role at Shopify called a UX lead. And 
that person is essentially responsible for the entire experience in a product, uh, which means that they have to be accountable for the content quality, the design quality, elements of front-end development. And so that means that they have to integrate all of those disciplines in a really smart way to result in a better experience. So because that's the way that we work, we really wanted that to be reflected in how we put together the Shopify style guide. That sounds like a beautiful utopia. (laughs) It sounds great. (laughs) What do you think was like, I guess, the trickiest design decision you think you had to make with the team? So the hardest decision really was um, deciding what was inside of scope and what was outside of scope for our April deadline. Um, So we actually only had 10 weeks to pull this all together. Wow. Back in February, we had a design sprint where we talked about how we would turn all of this raw material and way of working into a style guide that we would share publicly. And I remember at the end of that design sprint, we we had this slide and it said something like, build a good component library and also include some guidelines <laughs> about how to use the components. Easy. <laughs> yeah, easy, no problem. Um, so I think that was one of the trickiest things is we really were working under some pretty heavy constraints. And those constraints were driven by the fact that at the end of April, we held Unite, which is our annual developer conference. And that was a hard deadline. And we knew that we wanted to make our style guide available at Unite, which meant that we had a very hard deadline to work towards. And the reason that we wanted to make it available at Unite is because Shopify has this whole community of partners. And these are people who are developers who develop apps and themes and different experiences that plug into Shopify. And we knew that we wanted to make this available to them because we wanted to enable them to also build the way we build so that when merchants are using Shopify, they don't have this sense that they're moving between different experiences that are built by different people, that we're using the same design system, that we're using the same design language, um, that we're thinking about content in a consistent way, and that we're all working towards the same design principles and goals. Um, So that's why we had that hard deadline. And I think that was one of the trickiest things about this project is pulling all of that together with a multidisciplinary team in 10 weeks and building the site was just a big challenge. So you know, we definitely had conversations along the way about taking certain things out. But I think the thing that the team was really committed to was really representing that multidisciplinary practice that we have at Shopify in the end product. So it wouldn't have felt right to us to have just shipped, you know, a component library without those UX guidelines and without those content guidelines included. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's probably something that you had dreamed about doing for, or that Shopify had dreamed about doing for a while. How many resources were kind of devoted to it ultimately? And then how did it feel for the team to finally ship it? Um, I think it was a team of about 22 people who were working on it pretty much full time in those 10 weeks. And we had representation from front end development, from design, uh, content strategy, there was me and there was also some another colleague named Celine who worked on it. But we were really also building on work that had already been done and thinking that had already been done. So the content strategy team at Shopify has done a really good job of documenting and advocating for content standards for quite a long time. So we definitely weren't starting from scratch. And 
even as we were revising the things that we were going to include, and as we were looking at content guidelines, for example, at the component level, I had the support of the entire content strategy team. So I was able to get them together for a two-day sprint to work with me on fleshing out and developing some of those UX and content guidelines for components. So although the core team was about 22 people, we definitely had the full support of the entire UX organization at Shopify. And, you know, they were just and continue to be really enthusiastic supporters of not just this project, but also this multidisciplinary way of working. But it sure felt good to launch. I mean, the the week leading up to Unite, we were very, very busy. (laughs) We were putting in some very long hours. Um, We definitely had a few moments where we were looking at each other thinking, are we going to be able to get this done in time? Just the content alone, without any of the visuals, was about 180 pages in a Google document. And that's where we developed it and worked on it and edited it. And then we migrated everything over into markup before we launched it. And so you can just imagine, just even from a purely tactical perspective, the volume of that work was was pretty intense. Yeah, it sounds like all hands on deck. Um, yeah. What were the what kind of feedback did you get? I mean, it sounds like you guys had you know, a really clear sense of who your audience was and the objectives that you had in like delivering this to them so that they could get a coherent sense of the whole system. But has that really resonated? Have people been using it in the way that you imagined they would? Yeah, we've had some really great feedback. I think from the perspective of our partners, they're just really excited that we're making this kind of a resource available for them um, and that they have these tools now available to them. So one of the goals, as I mentioned earlier, of this project is to help people to build better experiences more quickly. And I think in the case particularly of partners, you know, they can only do that if we give them the tools to do that. A lot of our partners are just, you know, one person who is building apps for Shopify, or they may be larger agencies of 150 people who are building apps or themes for Shopify. And so providing them with not only this insight into how we work, but also this very specific information and code base to be able to build Shopify experiences more quickly has just been really exciting for them. And it's been really exciting for us to start to see them using the system. We also have publicly available GitHub repository for Polaris. So we can allow our partners or really anybody in the community to submit issues to us. So if they notice something that is missing or isn't working properly or that they would like us to address, they can submit an issue into GitHub and we can look at it and we can just how to proceed with it. Um, And I think that's really important too, because, you know, this design system um, and the style guide is not complete. It's a work in progress. And it's certainly just from our perspective, the first version of it. So it's really important for us to get that community input and feedback so that we can really understand how to continue to evolve it. Yeah, I mean, they really do become design and development partners that you're kind of like collaborating with as you evolve it. That's really great. I think, you know, a lot of our, especially our listeners now and our customers of Intercom would be sometimes early stage startups who don't have the scale or size of Shopify, and many of them don't have content strategists or writers. Do you think this is something that, you know, they should think about approaching, um, developing a design system, or do you think it's something that they should wait to do? I think that it always helps to document standards and best practices, and importantly, also principles. So what are the What are the things that you care about as a company when you're developing experiences for humans to use? And I think having those conversations and documenting them 
does actually help you to work more quickly. I don't think that people necessarily need to develop fully fledged style guides. I mean, I've definitely worked with startups in the past who create them as they have the conversations, but I think it's nice to have a central place where those decisions and those conversation results live and those standards live. Because I actually, I do think it helps speed up your work. Even things like how do you capitalize headings? People will debate that. And then sometimes if they don't have a place to record their decision, they just keep having the same debate over and over and over again. So from design systems to to bots and conversational design, that's another topic that I know you've written about and worked in and around, uh, which is kind of like working in and around all of the 2016, 2017 design buzzwords. Um, You've written some really great medium posts about bots and personality that really resonated with us here at Intercom. I think you talked about avoiding personality for its own sake, which you, you talked about in terms of other design patterns as well, and focusing on user needs over any kind of overt personality. Is that a fair summary of your point of view, or can you talk a little bit about about your point of view on that? Yeah, absolutely. So the reason that I started to write about bots was because when I left Facebook and I did some freelancing for about a year and a half, I just saw this huge increase in requests from companies and people who wanted me to work on bot content. And the first question that I always asked them was, you know, why are you building this experience? Why do you think this is the right kind of interface for your customers? And it was really interesting to me how often they didn't have an answer to that question. Like they hadn't really thought about it. It was just that bots were this new thing. Lots of people were talking about it. And so they wanted to build one. And I think that this is actually really connected to the desire that a lot of companies have to sprinkle their interface with with whimsy (laughs) or quirk. And I blame MailChimp and Slack for this because they do it so well. They have found a way of integrating this very um, sort of prominent, present brand voice into their interfaces. But I think what companies don't realize when they look at companies like Slack and MailChimp is that their practice for doing that is actually very thoughtful. They're not just sprinkling content in their interface. They have a whole practice that is around developing their voice and thinking about the edges of their tone scale. So I think the chatbot phenomenon is kind of an extension of a company's desire to have this big personality and to engage with their users in this way that feels really human and meaningful. But I think just like the personality in interfaces, I think if it's not really well considered and if you're not prepared to really invest in thinking about the experience, it doesn't work very well. The other thing that I think is interesting about chatbots is we like to think of them as being this unique kind of experience, but In most cases, they're not actually intelligent experiences. They are just phone trees. So if you've used many bots in Messenger, you'll probably notice that, you know, they don't actually let you respond using natural language. They present you with a range of menu options, and then they ask you to pick one. And so this isn't actually that conversational. It's not really that different from an experience where you might interact with a modal on a website and have to pick one of the options. But I think there is just this real desire with companies to be friendlier and be human. And I think it's good to harness that instinct because I think that's a good instinct. But I think that the way we do it is important. And I don't think bots are always the right answer. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that that, that instinct, you, as you rightly point out, is really doesn't have that much to do with bots. It has to do with this desire to, to as you say, sprinkle personality. And it feels like that's something that 
probably predates bots, predates interfaces, and maybe comes from the idea that maybe older companies had to kind of outsource creativity to, say, advertising agencies and create really creative ads, as opposed to it really integrating a creative or thoughtful approach to tone of voice into their the rest of the organization. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And, and I think what we've seen with interfaces, with a little bit of the research that has been done, is that customers don't always want big personality to get in between them and their experience. You know, they, they kind of just want to get a task done. Most people aren't going to a piece of software in order to get their social friendly interaction. Um, they're going there to actually do something that matters to them. So whether that is checking in for a flight or trying to transfer money between their different bank accounts, Sometimes the big personality can actually get in the way and be distracting and not allow the person to accomplish the task they're trying to do as quickly as they would like. So I think it's just another example of companies thinking about what they want and what might be nice for them and their brand. And also as designers, you know, it feels really nice to have quirky, fun personality in our interfaces. But I think if we really step back and think about what our customers need, I think most of the time, in an interface, our customers just need us to get out of the way and help them to do the task that they want to do. So what's next for you? So at, at Shopify, continue to work on Polaris and just in terms of like the language or design topics that are fascinating you right now? Yeah, so I am really excited to continue to work on Polaris. We've got big plans for our design system and for how we evolve our style guide. Because we developed it so quickly, we don't have actually a great governance model in place. For example, we can communicate new releases or how we ship new components, both internally or externally. So governance is actually a really big piece of this. And anybody who has managed a big project like this with a lot of moving pieces know that generally you shouldn't be thinking about governance after you ship the thing. You should be thinking about it before. (laughs) But we are very much in the process of developing that now. And I think one of the benefits of waiting until now to really think through and develop that is that we do have the benefit now of a lot of feedback from internal stakeholders and also from our partners. And so I think that will allow us to develop sort of a almost an MVP of governance that allows us to to move quickly, but also allows us to really respond to the communication needs of the different people who are using Polaris so that we're always really focused on that piece about helping people to build better experiences and helping them to build faster. So that's the next step for me on this project. And then personally, I'm working on this book for Rosenfeld Media about interface content. So I just really need to get down to continuing to write (laughs) and also uh, to doing the research that I need to do. You know, this book is not a book about uh, me. It's not a book about my specific experience at Shopify or Facebook, but it's a book generally about interface content and uh, why it matters and helping people who are not necessarily writers to learn how to think about interface content to make their experiences better. And so I'm talking to a lot of different people. I'm gathering a lot of different stories. And I'm particularly interested in the piece where interface content has made a significant impact, either positive or negative, in somebody's real life. Because I think it's really easy to trivialize some of these experiences or to think that they don't matter that much. But they actually do matter a lot to the people who are using them. So something as simple as checking into a flight, 
you know, if you are in a stressful situation, for example, and you're, or you're trying to go somewhere to visit somebody who say may be ill, or, you know, there are a range of scenarios that happen in life that make these experiences feel, feel really significant when you're trying to do them, especially when they don't work properly or when they're not clear. And so I think collecting some of these types of stories my hope is that it will help people who are building these experiences to think about them as important to people because I think that they are. Yeah, I mean, that that really resonates and, and kind of ties together everything that you've been talking about, about just connecting it back to the user and the user needs as opposed to um, just thinking about what's literally on the screen or on the page. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. This was really, really a fascinating discussion. I can't wait to read the book. Again, the title is From Button Copy to Bots, Writing for User Interfaces, and that's from Rosenfeld Media. Uh, when can people expect to see it? We're aiming for early 2018. So hopefully by January, if I'm really, really good, maybe the end of 2017, but I don't think that will happen. <laughs> okay. Well, we won't hold you to it. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> thanks so much. This was great. Thanks, Elizabeth. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com. 